Join Western Field Ornithologists and Colorado Field Ornithologists for their joint 2023 convention. This will be the biggest birding event this summer and takes place July 19th to the 23rd in picturesque Summit County, Colorado. The convention includes four days of field trips covering habitat from pinyon juniper foothills to alpine tundra. It's a great opportunity to pick up those high elevation specialties. Field trip leaders will include the ABA's own Ted Floyd and the convention keynote speaker Jesse Berry from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Other highlights include workshops and science sessions, youth birder field trips and socials, bioblitz, and national and local vendors. For more information and to register, visit www.cobirds.org. That's www.cobirds.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It is the end of April, which means it's time for This Month in Birding, a monthly panel discussion. We'll get right to that. But first, a reminder that if you find yourself in Southern Ontario this weekend, make sure to join us for the first of our ABA Community Weekends. This one is in Toronto. It is a fun weekend of free birding events, though space is limited and you'll need to sign up to participate. You can get more information about it and sign yourself up at our website. The link is in the show notes. Should be a great time at a very birdy place at a phenomenal time of year to see those birds. So let's get to it. Our panel is Jenny Duberstein, Andres Jimenez, and Jordan Rudder. We're ready to talk vultures, TikTok, and night parrot skulls after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of April 2023. Just in time for the ABA Community Weekend in Ontario, a white wagtail was seen in Angus, just north of the city of Toronto, though as far as we know, not a place we're planning on going, but still a good sign for the weekend. This common and widespread old world songbird is a regular vagrant to the ABA area, and aside from a small breeding population in northern Alaska and regular vagrants in the west of that state, shows up pretty randomly anywhere on the continent. This is the second record for the province. Photos seem to confirm that this is likely the Ocularis subspecies, which is the highly migratory Northeast Asian breeding population, and incidentally, the subspecies that breeds in Alaska, which is by far the most commonly encountered population in North America. It's Eurasian golden plover season in the Maritimes, and the first of what usually ends up being a handful of this species was seen this week in Gould, Newfoundland. Local birders report that the weather forecast looks very good this week for European vagrants with strong transatlantic winds between Ireland and Iceland direct to eastern Canada, so stay tuned for what could be an exciting week. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or on ABA Community. It is the most exciting time of year for birders in the ABA area, so it's appropriate that we have such an exciting group of panelists for our end of the month roundtable this month in birding. What a group we have today. Let's get to it. She is my colleague at the ABA a bird conservation superstar with the Snorin Joint Venture and the recipient of the inaugural Conservation Practitioner Award from the American Ornithological Society. May I suggest that that go by from here on as the Jenny Duberstein Award. It's Jenny Duberstein. Welcome Hello. back, Jenny. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be back. And he's a conservationist from Toronto, Ontario by way of Costa Rica, or is it the other way around? I can never remember how that works. It is Andres Jimenez. Welcome back, Andres. What an absolute pleasure to be back. Thank you for it's having so me. It's so good to see you. 
And she is our friend from the American Bird Conservancy. And now, as of this episode, the most frequent, maybe most reliable guest for this month in birding, passing Nick Lund with this episode. And Nick, I, I know Nick's not going to take it sitting down. Anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing her next month at the biggest week. It's Jordan Rudder. Hello, Jordan. Hello, hello. Great to see you all here. Lots of, uh, lots of bird news out these days. It's a busy time. I think birders are starting to feel a little bit better about themselves after a long and cold winter, at least across much of the continent. Uh, but let's put all of that aside for now. We'll get to it. We've got a lot to get to. I want to ask the question that is on every birder's mind right now in the middle of April, end of April. Seen anything good? Seen anything interesting? I did. Actually, it was not a sea, but a here. here. Um, a whippoorwill Oh, is- wow. Yeah, a whippoorwill uh, woke Gabriel and I up in the middle of the night a few days ago, and it was amazing. New yard bird, yeah, I was going to cool. say you've got that nice yard out in the uh, in the woods now, where you can hear whippoorwills. You're not going to hear the too many of those in downtown DC, I imagine. No, so never would have guessed it beat hairy woodpecker. I'm still waiting wow. on that species, right. but whippoorwill is super cool, super appreciative. Spring is coming. Absolutely. I'm pretty pumped that the meadowlarks are back. And yeah. So Eastern meadowlarks for me are, oh, I love them. And it just to hear them call is fantastic. And I also saw some salamanders. So, Yeah, it's salamander season too. This is not a salamander podcast, Andres, so you're not allowed to talk about. So oh, I'm, sorry. I'm just joking. You can talk about whatever you want. Um, but it, yeah, no, no, spring is salamander season. You're a little bit behind us. Uh, we usually go look for salamanders in, uh, in March where I live, uh, when the marble salamanders are are out and the spotted salamanders are breeding. Um, but it's been a while since I've seen some of those. I should have, should have been better about that. How about you, Jenny? What have you been seeing, hearing any of that stuff? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to get out and do that much birding lately, but it's, you. you know, the migrants are starting to show up. White winged doves are back in Tucson. Um, the Lucy's warblers are singing in my yard again. Oh, that nice. when the Lucy's warblers start to sing and when the prickly pear start to bloom in my front yard, my front yard, I always, make a note of it. And so it shows up in my Facebook memories and it's usually, sometimes it's like within a day, like, or to the day this time, um, everybody's a little bit later than usual, but yeah. Who to, who to imagine that Facebook memories is the way that we all do phenology. Right. Uh, That's (laughs) a fantastic idea. I'm doing that from now on. I know people, people think that I'm just searching for likes by saying, Oh, the 13 warbler day today, but really it's to keep track of this stuff every year that it comes up again. (laughs) You hold. I just want to touch back on uh, what you said. You have Lucy's warblers in your yard. Mm-hmm. Yep, I do. Yeah, I live in what's called Midtown Tucson. Like, there's no special habitat anywhere near me. I've got a big mesquite tree in the backyard, and one in the side, like in between my house and the the house to the east of me. And yeah, they hang out and sing. Huh. I yeah. have to Google Lucy's warbler. Sorry. It's a cool looking bird. It's one of the southwestern species that the rest of us don't really think about too much. Yeah, um, but it's a it's a cool bird. It's, um, cool and, bird. And it's not one that vagrates all that awesome too. So it's often too. So it's like a very very southwesterly type of definitely. Bird. And it's really. I guess I I guess I never really imagined that they would be in in town, but yeah, there they are. I had um I had a barred owls calling last night. When I was sitting, um, I was sitting here at my at this at this spot actually that I'm talking to you from at my workstation, um, finishing up some stuff, and I uh, I heard a barred owl like calling really loudly from behind my house. And usually it's a little late for them. Usually they start up in, in February and March, and they're pretty quiet by now. But I guess they've got chicks on the 
chicks on now and they're feeding them. So they're, they're not really nocturnal. They're 24 hour, 24 hour birds at this point. And so I ran outside of the back deck and I tried to hear it, but it had, it had shut up. I guess I can only hear it when I'm sitting in the spot where I'm talking to you. That's the best thing I've heard recently. But you all That's cool. And stuff. Nate, I, you know, I have family that lives in the same yeah. town that, that you do. And so I know those barred owls well yeah. and my my brother and his family and then friends of his would send me recordings of things that they had heard and it's barn owls like make some owls. strange yeah. sounds they, re- they <laughs> like, really do what bird sounds like aliens <laughs> having sex yeah with each other like, like screaming <laughs> at each other yeah very bizarre yeah. yeah yeah they um we have a ton of barn owls i mean I, I think people in the southeast um really underappreciate how many barred owls, urban barred owls we have in towns. Like they, they do really well in these sort of, you know, we have a lot of, where I live, we have a lot of kind of established neighborhoods uh, with like big trees. And then they've got like these little parks and streams that kind of run through them where they can't put houses. And so they just kind of grow up and there's barred owls all over the place in those places. And and they're, they're, they're super, super common and, and impressive densities as well. It's it's strange to think about. And the response to your question, Jenny, it will be potus. Potus sound like aliens having sex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they do. That's true. Yes. They do. Yeah. But if I tried to suggest that that's what somebody was hearing in the Piedmont of North Carolina. It wouldn't you know? work. I know. It wouldn't work. Probably but wouldn't. my answer to that question would be a potus. A great potus. <laughs> that's true. They have the, the wildest, the wildest sounds. That's That's absolutely true. So like you mentioned last week, Nate, in your episode, um, condors are having a really challenging time. Um, Right now, they're dealing with avian flu, among so many other threats, including lead shot and everything else is an endangered species. And so not to, you know, repeat your episode, because I want all of your listeners to go listen to that episode. But what I really want to highlight right now is just that condors and vultures, they need some extra love, right? So Usually, we all talk about condors and they're these incredibly majestic creatures. Vultures, though, they're smaller cousins, you know, black vultures, turkey vultures. They're just as cool. Um, And of course, I hopefully, as my reputation on the podcast precedes me of saying that birds are amazing, probably the most time. I don't think Nick Glund will ever get that title. Um, But vultures are super cool. Everything from Rosemary Moscow's cartoon about how bird, you know, vultures are awesome um, to just all of the natural history that we could talk about. That could be a whole episode of itself. Um, but the real thing, because we always talk about recent articles and news pieces, I want to mention a column that came out in Thorold today. Uh, when I was prepping for this with Gabriel, he thought I was talking about the Avengers and thought that I was going to say that Thor's world <laughs> said that vultures are awesome, but it's actually Thorold. Um, And the author of this article, David Hawk. um, It's an appropriate name for a guy writing. I was just going to say. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Um, Is also claiming that vultures need more, more attention and appreciation. And I have to agree as a lifelong birder, you know, vultures were always kind of overlooked or even had a bad rap, but the fact that they're migratory is amazing as well. There's so much to learn from them. And I definitely want to tap Jenny because I know you have experience with actually like interacting with vultures from banding and everything. Um, But I guess really what I want to pose to listeners right now is don't underappreciate vultures. 
in general, but especially this season. Um, you know, I think especially being a Maryland birder, I'm super excited myself along with everyone else for warblers and birrios and everything that really is the, you know, flying jewels of spring. But vultures are super cool too. And we can't, you know, take them for granted for all that they contribute to our environment. Jenny, you talked about vultures last time you were on the podcast, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I did. I was all like vultures all the time. Kicking my brain to try and remember. I did all this like memorization of facts and figures for that one. <laughs> but yeah, we we talked about a paper about how vultures, this is worldwide, how vultures contribute to mitigating climate change mm-hmm. because they eat dead stuff and therefore the theory is that they prevent those those gases that are released when dead animals decompose from entering the atmosphere. It was an interesting study. And it was, you know, it wasn't um it wasn't like vultures are going to save us from climate change. Um, but it wasn't insignificant. And the, one of the most interesting things to keep in mind is that the vultures, like black vultures and turkey vultures that we have in the United States and in Canada, um, their populations are stable or even increasing. But for virtually every other species of vulture worldwide, their populations are not just declining, but are declining at, at super, super alarming rates, pretty much universally as a result of, of human activity. I would like to chip in on why vultures are ridiculously awesome. Um, there's pre-colonial indigenous art in Costa Rica, um, which is made of gold. And it's these birds with wings open, right? And every time to receive them is like, oh, that's an eagle. Has to be the glorious harpy eagle. And no, those were vultures just drying out early in the morning. And for many indigenous cultures in Costa Rica, um, the vultures represented the animal that brought the body, the soul actually, from... The, from the earth up into the sky. And there was some uh, burial rituals in indigenous cultures in Costa Rica in which they would leave the body out, vultures would consume that body, and then they would grab the bones, wrap them up, package them, and then bury them in their house. So their their ancestors would guard them, would guard their houses, would protect them. And vultures were that connection from earth to heaven. And so if you know... Vultures mitigating climate change is not good enough. <laughs> they can take your soul to heaven. <laughs> it's actually interesting. There are, there are a lot of indigenous cultures that have, um, you know, connections to vultures. I know the Cherokee here in the Southeast call them peace eagles because they didn't eat anything that was living. It makes sense. You know, you've, you've got these pe- vultures are among the most obvious creatures, birds that we see, even I see to this day. Um, it makes sense that you would have stories about them or people people get as as jordan has said vultures frequently get a bad rap because of the death thing but you know i think that says more about our culture's sort of <laughs> connection with death or our the way that we think about death um as something to be feared and not something to be you know appreciated vultures we're we're people are missing the boat if they're not uh they're not appreciating those things that are out there have you seen vultures yet this year uh, Andres, I know that they are a migratory bird. They're back. They're back with their yeah. scars. I, I call them that they have scars because yeah. the vultures are back in Costa Rica. They have a very naked neck. But oh, yeah. The ones here have a very feathery neck. They look like so <laughs> fancy with their scarves. It's incredible. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, uh, you know, it's Canada rather than Costa Rica. It's a lot colder there. I now just want to pick Jenny's brain even for her memory of just all the like vulture facts and everything. Like, But anyway. 
There, but time. I'm with you, Jordan. I and I think I said this on the last episode. I I didn't have anything against vultures before I got a chance to collaborate with researchers from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary on their their new world vulture project. Um, but once I got to like actually spend some time with them, I just have a whole new appreciation for them. They're so beautiful. They're just gorgeous. Um, and so interesting, like their personalities are fascinating. We were putting, um, satellite transmitters on them. So we were trapping them and had them in the hand. So we really could see them up close. Um, and the difference between like a black vulture in the hand and a turkey vulture in the hand, turkey vultures are just like, okay, do whatever you need to do. And black vultures are like, I'm going to eat you. That's what I've heard. Um, when I, I did an interview, um, I guess like two or three years ago now with Katie Fallon, who some of you may know, uh, who wrote a book about vultures. And um, she's worked in rehab facilities as well. And she has the same thing to say about turkey vultures versus black vultures. Turkey vultures are just very cool and chill. And black vultures are uh, little tiny dinosaurs. And, uh, you know, black vultures are more social, certainly. And that may play a role of it with it too you kind of have to be more aggressive around your your i don't know vulture colleagues that's the word that first came to mind i don't know if vultures really have colleagues but the flock mates um whereas turkey vultures are a little more solitary but they they do have personalities the which is something we'll talk about in a bit but just quickly because i think this might be a good flow then too for what andres is going to talk about is you know jenny said about her own experience and i think that goes back to so many things whether it's science communication or helping birds or whatever where all of a sudden if you have an experience your your perception your opinion changes Mm -hmm. right i mean for me i know i really changed my opinion of vultures in college because i was studying your pigeal glands of great catbirds, but I was doing all of the background research and learning about vulture uropygial glands and how they don't have fully functional ones. And that's part of why they have to dry their wings because oh, right. they don't have the preen oil to actually keep their feathers as water resistant. And then you go into why is that and all of the adaptations for that. Why, it just, why, why is that? Why is that? Please teach me. Yeah, Tell please. us. Why is I, that? I'm fascinated. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I know they, they do that, but why? Like, I guess I never made the connection as to, to why. Why would they? Oh, that be a thing? so so vultures, as we all probably have observed, usually, especially after a big rainstorm, will open their wings in the morning and let mm-hmm. their their feathers dry out. Right, um, and that's because they don't have the preen oil yeah. to keep their feathers water resistant. Say, like a Baltimore Oriole. Right. Well, we still don't fully understand as as scientists why your pigeal secretions are made or how they're made. Rather, is it a byproduct? Is it intentional? We still are figuring that out. But for vultures mm-hmm. who don't have the need to either evade predators or predate, right? So they don't have anything chasing after them usually, and they don't have to chase their food. They can take the time to let their oh, feathers dry out okay. compared to say. A hawk that needs to actually get a bird, so a cooper's right. hawk. If the, that has if to the opportunity comes, it's got to take it. Whereas a vulture can take yeah. its time. Yeah. yeah. So when I learned that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, vultures are so cool!" Yeah. Wow. And then there's just more and more that you can keep going. The fact that they can digest anthrax, the fact that they vomit as a defense mechanism, the fact that they pee and poop on their legs to keep cool—like they're just these little weirdos they're that are weirdos. super yeah. awesome. Bravo, vultures! Bravo. <laughs> There, you know what this is reminding me, and um, I wish I could really quickly bring it, bring it up. Last, I think it was last winter, JB 
Brumfeld mm-hmm. posted this video. There were, I think they were turkey vultures. Maybe it was a mixture of turkey and black vultures. This is in the Cleveland area. And there was like a late snowstorm. And these vultures got like their wings got frozen, essentially. They couldn't fly and they kind of fell out of the trees. And there was this group of, I don't remember, in my memory, it was, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, a bunch of vultures that were just like frozen on the ground. And JB got a call from somebody else in town and said, what should we do? If you know JB, they rushed over there in their Subaru, (laughs) loaded up vultures in the back of their car, just like picked them up and plopped them in (laughs) until they warmed up enough where their wings melt, the the ice on their wings melted enough so that they could fly. And then they released them. So they took off. It was, the car must've smelled Fascinating. I was just going to ask After if, that. how long that must have taken to get the smell out of the car. <laughs> but wow. yeah, it was incredible. Um, my article is called TikTok's Falco Tinunculus, Getting to Know Urban Wildlife Through Social Media by Duo Yin, Yan Chun Chen, and Quang Gao. And it came out in a journal that I know nothing about called Animals. <laughs> 3.2 impact factor. Didn't sound that terrible. But the topic was fascinating because I never Mm -hmm. thought you could apply discourse analysis to social media. And I never thought that someone was going to study the interactions of animals and people through social media. And so um, this paper examines the virtual encounters with Falco Tinunculus, the common kestrel, uh, through looking at a TikTok account. And then they studied the knowledge production process of urban wildlife as well as the emotional response of audiences and it was interesting because the study reminded us that mass media tends to favor images and content about human wildlife conflict dealing with sensational topics through the lens of expert witnesses while social media has become a space in which more harmonious less produced encounters can be presented and so it's important to know that this unbalanced bias of mass media can even hamper the efforts of conservation that we do with birds. But then social media becomes a bit of a counterbalance. So in the study, they follow a TikTok user called Mr. Quinn, who created and uploaded 500 short observation videos detailing the daily lives of magpies and common kestrels as common kestrels steal the nest from the magpies and then they nested there for like three years. He got 36,000 followers and accumulating 250,000 likes and 12,000 comments. And so uh, Mr. Quinn managed to document a pair of doing three seasons. He started by rescuing some kestrel um, chicks that were learning how to fly and putting them on the magpie nest and then the 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 kestrels successfully came and fed them and then they kept on nesting there but during one season they actually moved to a different location and so he started using pre-recorded content to satisfy his audiences and so i got some very interesting lessons about this study first that urban wildlife has become an area of focus for many content creators out there in social Mm -hmm. media Social media has created a place for interaction between wildlife, audiences, and content producers. And it enriches the user's knowledge because they start getting questions from their, their, their audience. And so the audience starts enriching their knowledge as well. And so in my mind, I was thinking if the quality of that space varies, and it varies by creator because some of them might be super responsible, some of them might be super knowledgeable, and some just might like the content and might want to get likes. Um, and so each video needs to be analyzed critically to understand how personal motivations of content creators affects wildlife well-being and audiences' perceptions. Because this is not curated by scientists. 
This yeah. is not in the search of science and it's not in the search of knowledge. It's in the search of entertainment to the audience. And so it also reminds us of the power imbalance between humans and animals. And that at the same time, there is agency from wildlife into the audiences because the moment that the kelstrels look for a different place to nest, he had to start looking for content to satisfy the audiences. So yeah. it was not that produced and it changed a lot. The last thing I want to say is that the knowledge of wildlife received by users was not neither objective nor holistic as the knowledge of urban wildlife is subjective to these discursive practices used on social media. And so critically observing what we consume in social media can even define how creators and content creators interact with wildlife so they do it more responsibly. That's my article, and I found it fascinating. That is really, really interesting. Because I think, uh, you know, as all of us, we were on social media to varying extents. We've seen this stuff here and there. We've seen nest cams of raptors and owls and all sorts of stuff i think we've seen different different the quality you know varying quite a bit over the over the course like there's some stuff that's really good out there the stuff that's put out by various wildlife agencies and and uh conservation organizations when they do nest cams and whatnot and then there are videos on youtube of people going around shooting birds with bb guns like it's a it's it's a mixed bag for sure um I'm, I've always been sort of of the belief that the more stuff that gets out there, the more it has the opportunity to, you know, impact people in a positive way. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, I'm reading this article. Sometimes it says, you know, all these comments from people are like, "Where can I buy a kestrel?" <laughs> I don't know how productive that is, but I don't know. I want, I want to, I want to be positive about this stuff. I think that it has there's more good than bad, but you can't dismiss the bad, I suppose. So I'm, maybe this is a discussion, maybe if this paper that I'm working on ever gets published, it will be a topic for discussion on, <laughs> yeah, we'll bring it on this podcast in the future. But some colleagues and I are working on this paper about feral and free-ranging cats mm-hmm. and about kind of reframing that discussion that's saying, you know, like pitting the quote-unquote cat people against the quote-unquote bird people is ultimately just not productive. <laughs> And the the discussions we're having and the way we're approaching it is unhelpful. And I won't go into it except to say that in working on this paper and in my own interactions with Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts, I do believe that social media has a huge role to play in shifting perceptions about cat ownership and how cats are and how cats aren't. And so I think... As you said, you know, there's definitely negative aspects of it. I'm not painting anything with a rosy glow, but I think there's so much potential to affect positive change in society. And I think it's also, you know, the big conservation or small conservation organizations that are intentionally, you know, posting factually correct content. That's great. But different people get inspired by things in different ways and maybe some silly bird video that doesn't actually transmit anything, any specific facts is going to get somebody excited and inspired. And so I think we have to be careful to not dismiss things that, that as bird biologists or people who work in conservation, we might dismiss as like, Oh, that's just, you know, somebody posting silly bird videos. Okay, off my soapbox. No, I I kind of hesitate to follow up Jenny because that was such an incredible response that I completely agree with. 
But I think my two takeaways from this article was the desire for everyone, not just one group, not one side, whatever, everyone to ask more questions Mm -hmm. and try to collaborate more. Because I think the big thing, especially that Andres and Nate said, you know, depending on what information is accompanied with that TikTok video, with that social media post, you don't know if it's factual or vetted or not. So you have to ask questions. You have to understand, was this staged? Is this authentic? What's behind it? Um, Who's the person posting it? All of those things. Ask questions. But also, it's 2023 and content creators have incredible influence in every way. And I wish there was a way, and maybe this is my one day million dollar idea, hopefully. Um, but if those content creators could actually collaborate with authentic, authoritative voices mm-hmm. um, and organizations specifically that have that science and factual backing, that could be incredibly beneficial all the way around. You know, whether you're talking about education and science communication, getting messaging across, reframing really tif- difficult everything with the feral cats and door cats conversation like it could it could be really powerful in a really beneficial way and i think that's again just something we have to realize is social media isn't going anywhere Mm. and it's something to really consider as a tool in our toolkit for conservation efforts and moving forward rather than kind of being like you know, early 2000s where it was like, oh, the teenagers and their selfies and everything. <laughs> like, we can't discount no. the the influence and power of these things. I think I would like to add two thoughts to this. One is like, there's a huge opportunity not being exploited right now, which is content creators, as you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. But there's also something very important that there's a third party here, a third factor here, which is the AI the algorithm that rewards specific videos that might be irresponsible, poorly educational, but incredibly entertaining. And Mm -hmm. the AI will select and amplify them, eventually producing and reproducing certain narratives on social media that might not be constructive. And so this is not to say that there's a ton of positive things, but we also need to consider the role that these companies and their AIs are playing Mm -hmm. and how we take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of responsibility, I think, that people take for granted as content creators, as posters, even personally, you know, as people that are spreading information, whether it's, again, factual or not. That's one of the things that I do love about TikTok is that, you know, somebody can post something and then somebody else will do edit and pause mm-hmm. it and say like that was it's great collaborative. actually yeah. here's something else to consider here yeah, yeah. It, it it encourages collaboration yeah yeah i'm i recall and this is you know aging me a little bit but still this is in the social media age um maybe 10 15 years ago there was a show um and i forget what it's called it was on mtv it was like these these young people that were you know, kind of living in Hollywood and kind of, uh, oh my God, I can't remember. There's this guy, Spencer on it. Um, and he ended up after the show was over, uh, he ended up being like this hummingbird enthusiast. And so he like has all these crazy hummingbird feeders around his house. And he has these hats with like hummingbird feeders on the end. And he gets these hummingbirds to come up and like feed 
out of his hand, out of little feeders on his hand. Uh, the hills. That, the hills. That's it. The hills. Thank you. With <laughs> Heidi Montag. That's the one. Anyway, um, he was he was like posting videos of himself interacting with these hummingbirds, and it was pretty wild to see people getting really excited about wild what is effectively wildlife um, because of these who you, people who you wouldn't have necessarily expected to to be interested in nature or wildlife. That's all I have to say. The hills. Thank you. Well, and I was thinking also, as especially as Jordan was talking, so one of the things that I do for the ABA is I direct our uh, Camp Colorado, the Young Birder mm-hmm. Camp that we run every every summer. And um, during that program, we do these, we call I call them field craft workshops. And mm-hmm. they're just, you know, little 45 to 90 minute workshops that the kids can decide. We usually offer three or four different topics at the same time, and they might you know, do a deep dive into eBird or learn about field sketching or field journaling. And one, Jordan is one of my regular instructors for that program. And one of the, the workshops that she's offered is social media and mm-hmm. crafting social media posts and thinking about, especially for teenagers with developing brains, thinking about the things that are reasonable to post on social media and things that you might want to think twice before putting out there in the world. And so, um, yeah, just kind of that recognition that especially the, the younger generations, this is a really powerful and important tool um, that's evolving every day um, and shouldn't be overlooked. This reminds me, again, I was down in Columbia recently, and, and people are probably sick of hearing me talk about Columbia on this podcast, but um, one of the things that they did in conjunction with Bird Fair Kali was this uh, young birder, contest or it was very similar to our young bird of the year program that we run through the aba and one of the things that the kids had to do was essentially um make it like a tiktok of social media friendly video about a issue that's related to birds Good job. and that that year was um illegal bird trapping in some places in in columbia which is still a problem across the americas not even not mm-hmm. in latin america but in the u.s as well to see these kids who are teenagers and um almost teenagers talk about this issue so passionately in the language that was so clearly social media ease. Like it was, it was a TikTok. you know, people talk when they're on Instagram live or social media. That was how they were doing. It was really amazing because they're, they're so native to it. And, um, you know, harnessing that sort of power of social media and turning it into something that can be a, a, a boon to conservation is, is, is huge. And it was neat to see them do, doing that. Just on that point, too. So I recently saw a post by The New Yorker talking about Duolingo, Mm -hmm. which is um, an app that helps folks learn different languages. And it says that more people around the globe have access to smartphones than to high quality accredited education. Yeah. And the only reason why I want to share that one as my source, but two is, again, we just can't take for granted the impact of social media in our entire culture and society and how all four of us just gave different examples of, of how it's just part of the bird community. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just hope again, people ask questions and we keep this conversation going. One of the things that I love Nate, when you ask me to be on the podcast is that I feel like I don't know, 75 plus percent of the time, the topic that I'm assigned, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I've never heard about that before. (laughs) (laughs) And then I spend half a day doing a deep dive into some topic that I don't know anything about. And this was one of those cases. Um, So the article that I read was about cranial adaptations of the night parrot. And uh, if 
you know, night parrots have been in the news recently, you know, in the last three or four years. Um, for those of you who, who don't know what a night parrot is, it's a endemic species to Australia, super little known, one of only two nocturnal parrot species, the other being the, the kakapo. Um, it's mostly terrestrial. It can fly, but it prefers not to. There are, they don't even know how many of them there are. They estimate maybe around 200 um, at the upper levels. Um, and there were no, I'm going to put air quotes in here, no confirmed sightings of this bird between 1912 and 1979. So it went a long time where people just sort of thought this bird is extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the, like the mid two thousands, um, there started to be some observations and there were, you know, somebody saw three of them, but they didn't get a picture of it. And then they actually found a dead one that was like, it had crashed into a barbed wire fence and was dead on the fence. And then in 2015, researchers actually trapped one and put radio telemetry equipment on it. And I wrote this quote down because it was so great. Um, Somebody from one of BirdLife's um, publications said this was the birdwatching equivalent of finding Elvis flipping burgers in an outback roadhouse. <laughs> so, like, the, the fact that they actually found this bird. This is mythical. Like, some people are like, does it even exist? Yeah. Really? It was just a really dramatic story. The whole rediscovery thing is is wild with Night Barrett. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. August 2020, some indigenous rangers actually made some sound recordings. And so, you know, we have some knowledge of what this bird sounds like now and so what this paper was about these are this was published in the journal austral ornithology um they were looking at cranial adaptations what makes this bird able to be nocturnal um and as you might imagine with so few birds and something that is so secretive and hard to see they weren't like catching birds and banding them and taking measurements in the field what they did is they got their hands on the the holotype specimen, like the original specimen that was um, shot by John Gould in 1861 um, is still in the museum. And uh, they did a CT scan of it. So they were able to take this specimen and use equipment to take all of these really intense measurements. Um, and most of the paper, the first quarter of the paper i read it and i was like wow i can understand what they're saying and then they got into the <laughs> descriptions of all the specific bones and what the measurements were and i was like okay scan 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 exactly yep. <laughs> um yeah but they just they wanted to know what how is this parrot one of only two nocturnal parrots does it have other senses that allow it to um be successful nocturnally and and I encourage you to take take a look at the paper, but these were uh, paleontologists from Flinders University did this research, and what they found was that like owls, um, in some ways, although also unlike owls, they have asymmetrical skulls and ears. Um, they have their ears are really big, and they this part I couldn't quite. I've read this part of the paper like six times trying to figure out how to explain <laughs> it well. Like the ears come out from the skull more than average and one they're like one points more forward and one points more up although they're both on the same plane you know from the side but like they point in different directions um 
they the their eyes are very small like the the cornea i forget what the the way they described it but basically if the cornea was any smaller the eyes basically wouldn't be functional and the reason like the eye sockets are tiny because their ears are gigantic so in the same way that owls have monstrous eyeballs and huge eye sockets that take up 50 percent of the space in their skull these birds have very small eyes um, and big ears and they think that they use sound a lot to um to navigate at night is fascinating just yeah really fascinating I love this story because it's like such a throwback to like old fashioned ornithology where they're like, Oh, we don't know how this works. Let's just uh, throw it in an x-ray machine and see what it looks like. And <laughs> yep. Pretty there, much. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the interesting thing, like, you know, that the, it's an incomplete skeleton. So there's parts of it mm-hmm. that are missing. It's from 1861. It, Pretty you fragile. know, it was a bird that yeah. was shot. There's some damage. And so there's some parts where they're like, and it's one specimen. It's so they don't have anything yeah. else to compare it to. So they're like, we don't know if this is how they all are. We don't know if this was an anomaly in this species. We don't know if, if it was damaged here or if this is just how it always looks. Um, but yeah, it was, there's more, lots more detail in the paper. It's just it's interesting. And just a reminder of how much there is to go back to what Jordan was saying, how many questions there are to ask yeah. and what we can, what we can learn um, by asking those questions. Yeah, I don't know what the, if I don't know if they put it in this art in this um in this uh, study, but one of the cool things about the discovery of the night parrot uh, related to the to the indigenous people that got the recordings was that no one knew what they sounded like, and once they figured out sort of because people were hearing these weird noises and no one knew what it was, and once they figured out what night parrots actually sounded like, they were able to start finding them a little more frequently. Um, yeah, I mean the the whole bird was a giant mystery for for almost a century wait have we come full circle are we talking about alien sounds again alien sounds again that's right that's exactly right (laughs) yeah also shout out to museum science yeah yeah you know what it's true and i struggle with it right like i struggle with the idea of collections it's not Mm -hmm. something that i take lightly um especially continued collection just for the sake of having more birds in our collection our, you know, quote unquote, um, (laughs) but at the same time, like how amazing that somebody can study this bird from the 1860s, um, to learn all kinds of things about it. I am, I am very shocked that there's only one collected individual because every time I go to museums in Canada and the U S and Europe, I see thousands of Costa Rican birds collected, yeah. thousands of Costa Rican amphibians. Um, during the the Second World War, a lot of the collections were lost, and a lot mm-hmm. of the toads that were collected were lost. They collected even more. So I am very shocked, having seen how much Costa Rica was ravaged for collections, that there was only one specimen collected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess they, they even back in the 1860s, they couldn't find the dang thing. <laughs> And to clarify, because that could be a whole podcast of itself, mm-hmm. you know, museums definitely are is a huge can of worms topic. So I more so truly am just, at least for myself, clarifying, it is that amazing, amazing ability for us to ask questions and have some sort of hope even in terms of exploring solutions because of that. So just want to clarify, because as you mentioned, there's a lot to, con- a lot of concerns with museums too. Yeah, I mean, certainly Gould, when he collected this bird, um, did not expect that 
it would be i mean he couldn't he couldn't even conceive of what a ct scan, a CT scan. was <laughs> i mean that that i mean that that is the argument in favor of collections is that when you collect these birds you're sort of collecting them you're future proofing the science you're you're getting the birds so that down the road when the technology exists that you can learn more about them you'll have them available yeah i've, I've done work in museums so i i you know, I, I've I've seen I've seen it work, um, and as I said, it's not a discussion perhaps for this podcast, but maybe one down the road. The reason, probably the reason why no one saw it, is because it could hear so well, and any time it got close, a human got close to it, it that thing was was gone. And no one's no one's going to find it. Well, and it makes you like how many of them were there? Were there ever lots and lots of them? Have there yeah, always been very low numbers? Yeah, Jenny, in your research, did you find any different or any? commentary on the differences between like 1861 and this one i'm not sure i understand the question that the, oh. you mean like when gould like what he wrote about it in 1860 versus what they know about it now yeah or just the ct scan of or the 1860 specimen compared to the ones that they have now i don't think no the only CT specimen scans. they have yeah. is the oh, 1861 specimen yeah oh, that's I what they that did was- the scan of yeah. Oh, I this thought it was like shock. the only specimen from 1860, not the only specimen nope. like the only specimen period ever. Okay, yes. the only specimen. Shocked. Yeah. Well, only then I'm even specimen. more glad yeah. I asked because now again I can say. Yeah, the, well, there was the amazing. there was the one that, that like, was caught on the barbed wire fence, but that wasn't a full specimen. That was like just a the body. That one famously didn't have a head, if I remember right. <laughs> that's what they needed. So the thing that they were they're setting it didn't have it, so it was an incomplete specimen. I remember that. It probably got popped off by a raptor or something that came by and saw, saw a free meal. But then that makes you ask more questions. Yeah, there's a lot because, of questions about this bird. Because now I'm also like, what, what's the benefit? There's so many different owls. Why would the adaptations be different? Like, obviously, it's worked enough yeah. enough for night parrots, but why not more? Anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, it's not a predatory bird, too. It's so it. seeds and stuff. So it, maybe it doesn't need the big eyes. It just yeah. needs the big ears because it's like a rabbit. You know, rabbits have big ears because everything eats them. (laughs) (laughs) I will say this. I have a tab open. I haven't listened to it yet, but I have a tab of um, Night Parrot Calls. And just looking at the the onomatopoeia makes me like dink dink. (laughs) Ding dee ding. (laughs) Ding dee ding. Dee 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 dee. There's an antiphonal duet. A croak. A hollow whistle. It sounds like they have... Ding de ding sounds Alien like Australian, like, Australian yeah. slang for something. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> there was sort of a fun story that came out in Popular Science uh, last month based on a study published at the same time uh, regarding the social behavior of what they call Caribbean flamingos, what the ABA checklist calls American flamingos. Uh, and the gist is that the birds within a flock, and sometimes these flocks get super big, um, but the birds within them have essentially a click that they associate with the most. And uh, before I get too far, I do just want to read the lead of this story because I think it's perhaps one of the best leads of any bird story that I've, I've ever uh, come across. That's and, a big uh, claim. Mm-hmm. So the lead, the story is called Flamingos Have Big Personalities and Their Friendships Prove It. And the first, uh, the lead is, uh, with their bright pink plumage, it's always Wednesday for flamingos. As it turns out, that might not be the only thing they have in common with members of the plastics from the 2004 movie Mean Girls. So I've, I've never actually heard a bird story uh, connected to the mean Lindsay girls. Lohan vehicle Mean Girls, but uh, there you go. Anyway, 
uh, the story goes on to say that uh, flamingos have friends that they like to hang out with. Um, and in that way, uh, the flamingos are very much like my, my teenage son and humans in general, to be fair. Uh, the cliques support each other in squabbles with other cliques, among other things. And the authors of the study asked the question whether this could occur in other flocking species. Um, that's a question I'll leave to the side for now. Um, the revelation that I want to focus on, though, is that flamingos have different personality types within those subgroups. And so my question to you is, what bird do you think has your personality type? So do some introspection. Tell me what bird is most like you. See, Nate, I thought that the question was a different question. Yeah, I changed it there at the end. <laughs> because it's too easy. What bird has the most personality? That's, that's too simple. Because I, oh, see, that's not even rims. what I... In my head, this is what I thought the question was going to be, and okay. I'm just buying time so I can yeah. think of the answer Please. to what the question well, is. Well, we're buying time. I don't know if I'm more <laughs> shocked about flamingos <laughs> having different personalities or Nate having a teenage son. Yeah, both both wow. are shocking. Both are shocking. <laughs> Believe me. Yeah. I thought we were supposed to say which bird is the most dramatic. Oh, well, you can do that. And are I you don't the... know where I got that. No, no, no. Now I <laughs> want to make know. that up? Flamingos Now I want to know what is her personality if she yeah, was a bird. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What you is cannot what... give her a pass. If you were a bird, what bird has your personality? Maybe a last I don't know. <laughs> I think, can, I mean, we a can we answer for other people? Oh, yes. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you can, I... <laughs> actually. That's fine. My gosh, I, that's a I hard have no question. shame though. Yeah, it, it. I went to Oberlin College and I was an RA for three years, and I always thought I was going to be like the cool big sister. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I was just going to take care of my like other students and like people in my hall and like be the cool RA. Mm -hmm. No, that totally flopped. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally, totally flopped. Um, every year, independently, all of my residents said that I was a mama quail. Okay. That they were like my little cubby and I took care I of them it. and brought it together and like checked in and made sure they were all okay rather than like being cool. And at, at least it worked at Oberlin where everyone's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's okay. Jordan, but I think quails are cool. I, I want to be like a Montezuma quail then. Yeah. There you know, you go. like I got to be, I got to be a cool quail then at least find some compromise. But I think that's probably what has at least followed me. And I will say, but because I thought the question was going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good answer. So the one that has had more time to think about this is Nate. Yeah. So I have an answer. what is? I was going to save it to the end. but Come on, man. Right? No, you got to give us some time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk a big game, but uh, when it all comes to, when push comes to shove, I'm actually pretty introverted and kind of shy. So um, probably a gray catbird. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the dense foliage and I'm yelling out of it. Uh, who knows who's listening, <laughs> but uh, try and find me. Good luck. Good luck. So one year at the end of bird camp, the kids were all doing impressions mm -hmm. of the instructors. And uh, Jem Brumfield, JB was there. And I think Raymond Van Buskirk was an instructor that year. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember specifically, but it was, you know, it was like, JB, there's a bird six miles away. Like that was their imitation of JB, yeah. you know, finding yeah. birds and identifying them with like, 
because of how the air smelled or something. <laughs> just <laughs> and then super incredible bird identification, yeah. bird yeah. spotting, and, and excitement, like the passion yeah. and excitement that JB has. And with Raymond, I feel like they were, it was actually not so much his birding stuff, but they were teasing him about not eating gluten. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Raymond. I tease somebody about not eating gluten. <laughs> is, that, is that gluten free? And then it was my turn, and and um, they they stood up and they were like, "Okay, does everybody have a water bottle? Does everybody have sunscreen on? Are your seatbelts fastened?" It was just like the the in loco parentis role that I have as the director <laughs> of camp, and so yes. describing yourself. I wouldn't call myself a quail exactly. I don't know. I'm thinking about like shorebirds or something like where yeah. the the young are precocial. They're out there running around taking care of themselves, but there's somebody there kind of keeping an eye on them. So You know yeah. um you know how goldeneye uh when they like one golden one female goldeneye will end up being like the parent of like a bunch of different broods and you'll end up seeing like a female golden eye around a one up swimming around a pond with like 30 ducklings behind them maybe you're a golden eye yeah i like that i've seen mergansers like that as well mergansers do it too yeah okay i'm gonna go with it i like it. there you go i'm on board (laughs) how about you andres man i wish not least i really wish jody was here because i know jody (laughs) allaire Big hug to Jody. Would go like, yeah. man, you're this. You're yeah. absolutely this. And he would be Jody's so totally confident. Not cracker. Yeah. And he would just give me the right bird species. So Jody, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I really hope you tell me. Um, I wish I could, you know, for my, my spirit animal to be a ruby-throated hummingbird. Yeah. To be brave I enough to just cross through the Gulf of Mexico one single flight, you know. Yeah. I wish that would be my spirit bird, but in reality, I think I'm more like a red-breasted nuthatch or a chickadee. Well, you really are Canadian now, Andre. I know. I was going to go for a Costa Rica one, and I was like I, thinking I was like, about the dogs. It was perfect. The- it said Canada. It's in Costa Rica. It goes back and I forth. No, man. I know. I was going to go with the ruby-throated, but then I started thinking, and I'm a bit more like a red-breasted nuthatch, you know, always working, working really hard, being pretty friendly around people, having some mates, yeah. hanging around with the chickadees, hanging around with the woodpeckers, being able to get along with everyone, yeah. yet being very enthusiastic and sometimes a little bit nervous, you know, when you have your seats and the red-breasted nuthatch comes and looks at you and trying to, <laughs> tries to come and then it goes away. But it's always brave enough to try it until it makes it. That's true. And so I would go with... Sorry, Costa Rican people, tropical people. I did not choose a tropical bird, <laughs> but you know, red-breasted nuthatch or chickadee. Yeah, that's all right. I see it. I see it. That's a good one. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much for for joining me for this month in birding. This was a really good one. Uh, Jordan, Jenny, and Andres. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'll have links to all their various uh, things going on. Jenny, also congratulations on the AOS award. Well deserved. Um, we're all very proud of you here in the bird community and at the ABA. And uh, we will uh, see you all uh, when I see you. I hope you all have a great spring. Thanks so much for your time. Good to see you all. Yeah, thank you. Good birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. We are a member-supported organization, and as a member, you get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and BDO Books, among others. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash 
join. Special shout outs this week to Donna Foley and family of Fleming Island, Florida, Susan Jeter of Little Rock, Arkansas, Tom Natale of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and Stephanie Schoenberger of Menifee, California. All of them recently joined the American Birding Association and noted that this podcast was the reason, one of the reasons for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who would love to take a helicopter trip to Nevada's Ruby Mountains, specifically for a snowcock TikTok. Technical production is by John Lowry, who would do the same, but you know he needs to check with AAA for directions first. He needs a snowcock TikTok triptych. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who prefers to be a little more flexible and would prefer an ad hoc snowcock TikTok triptych. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I'm only curious if the Himalayan snowcock has been introduced to the Alps, because who wouldn't want an ad hoc Slovak snowcock TikTok 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 Ugh, I almost made it. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Swig. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.